Well, hi, everybody. My name is Ken Lowney, and thank you for connecting today's podcast. This is the front line of clinical operations. This is where you get firsthand information and expertise. You get how-to advice from some of the leading practitioners in the clinical ops space. And today I have Janine Penman with me, certainly one of those preeminent people. As I said, I'm Ken Lowney. I'm with Agatha. I'm the head of worldwide operations for Agatha. And it's a real privilege to have Janine today. She and I have had many conversations about what's happening in this space and clinical operations in general, specifically around the TMF. A short introduction of Janine. Janine um, is sort of one of those classic people. She came up through big pharma, several places, including Pfizer as her last stop. So you can't get any bigger than that. But for 10 years, she's taken the expertise she built up on clinical development, clinical ops and quality, and brought it to bear in a consulting business where she works with sponsors, with CROs, and under the name JP Scientific, brings that expertise to their day-to-day -day operations. Janine, as a, a first question to you, can you tell me a little bit about the typical work you do with your customers? Absolutely. I'd be happy to, Ken, and thanks for the introduction. Um, JP Scientific provides consulting and support services to, as Ken mentioned, pharmaceutical companies of all sizes, as well as CROs and other vendors. And more recently, we've actually been working with digital health vendors as well, so companies that offer digital health platforms, and they're now looking to get into the pharmaceutical space to support clinical development and clinical trials on some level. Um, JP Scientific offers process support and process planning. We support um, complete buildup of quality management systems. And we also support the e-clinical solutions that companies need to support clinical trials. And as you mentioned, one of the cornerstones of that e-clinical solution suite is, is always a TMF. We support other things as well, like CTMS, e-regulatory, quality management systems, or QMS, LMS, and um, even EDC integrations. Um, our favorite thing is to take one or more of those systems and integrate them to support um, a full service clinical suite. And most recently we've started working with investigator site files as well. And with remote monitoring becoming the norm um, as of COVID, but certainly beyond COVID, that is gonna be a focus of ours. So we're really excited to be working with that new type of technology and integrating it with TMF and with other uh, modules in an e-clinical system suite. Well, that makes you just about the perfect kind of person for this podcast. I love working with people who are in uh, consulting type businesses because you work with a multiplicity of customers and clients. And that means you see a lot and you can see patterns, patterns of what's working, patterns of what could be done differently. So really just welcome. And it's a true delight to have you on here. Today's Thank session, you. oh, you're welcome. Today's session, of this series is specifically on the TMF. And this came about because at recent conferences, I am hearing and seeing a reference to concepts like take ownership of your TMF, reclaim your TMF. And this got me thinking, even though I work with customers in this space all the time, I'm still interested in kind of what's behind that thinking. So I wanted to um, use you, Janine, today to get a lot smarter about this but we'll go through it in an organized way. And it starts with this, if we're talking about taking back or transferring ownership of the TMF, what's the norm? Who typically owns the TMF? 
We live in an ecosystem with three kinds of players, sponsors, CROs, and sites. And that ecosystem has different uh, responsibilities for each of those three players. Where does the TMF ownership usually lie? Well, that's a phenomenal question, Ken, because there's not a single answer to it. It's nuanced. Like, like everything we do in this industry, it's nuanced. So who officially owns the TMF is one question. And that's really the question that we want to focus on today. But I'm going to answer it in different, in different um, forms and from different perspectives. Who legally owns the TMF as far as the regulators are concerned in the United States and beyond is the sponsor. It's the TMF is the sponsor's responsibility. That's the long and short of that answer. And we don't need to know anything else. The sponsor owns the TMF. Now, I think the question you're really asking, though, is who typically takes care of the TMF? Where is the TMF nanny? <laughs> and the TMF doesn't today typically reside with the sponsor. So it's an interesting dynamic because the sponsor is responsible for the TMF. But the sponsor really owns the TMF, meaning they really have physical ownership of it. Most um, most regularly, what we see is the TMF lying with, with the main CRO or the primary CRO. A lot of sponsors still do full-service outsourcing. And if that's the case, then um, the probability that your full-service CRO is, is setting up and utilizing their TMF um, and managing it on your behalf is that's the most commonplace thing today. We also see um, some hybrid models uh, where the sponsor has the TMF, meaning they've contracted and licensed the TMF, but the CRO is maintaining that TMF. And so that would be another scenario. Um, it's not the CRO's TMF legally, the sponsor provides the technology, but at the same time, the, um, the CRO is the one that's maintaining it. And then um, we also have a scenario, we have a small percentage of sponsors who do maintain their own TMF and have their CROs and their vendors work in that TMF, um, but that's not the norm. And um, we should talk about why that's not the norm and also how maybe do we get to that norm to improve the quality of the TMF for the ultimate stakeholder, which is the sponsor. Wow, when you said there is no typical, you really covered it because you covered lots <laughs> of different scenarios. And as you said, it's nuanced. Now, as a technology vendor, we deal mostly with uh, sponsors, to some degree with CROs and sites, but we do deal with sponsors who are managing their TMF, they've taken responsibility for it. They tend, our customers tend to be clinical stage companies, earlier stage, smaller. Is there any kind of pattern, if you said the likelihood of a small company or the likelihood of a large organization having uh, taken responsibility for its own TMF, is there any kind of pattern there? I think there is a pattern there. Um, and it's by no means absolute because there is a lot of write your own rules to this. But I think I do see a pattern. And the pattern really is this. When you're a very small company, when you're a startup, maybe it's your first asset, um, you've just gotten into clinical trials, you picked up in phase one or phase two, um, the tendency for those companies to hold their own TMF is um, is higher. So it's almost like a. am going to describe to you a, a, an inverted bell-shaped curve. So the likelihood of very tiny sponsors holding their own TMF is high because they need the path of least resistance. They need to set up quickly. They're very nimble and they take care of some things themselves internally to mitigate cost 
um, and costs for your first studies can be very high. So they keep their TMF in-house as a way to maintain the cost. A lot of times though, they do that um, in systems that we would call not validated or in systems that are could be appropriate but haven't been appropriately validated. So suffice it to say, if they're using you, they're a step ahead of a lot of their peers because they've chosen a validated system that was built for purpose as opposed to a SharePoint or something else like that, which um, is not the worst thing in the world, but it's not what we call a built for purpose or a validated system. Um, then you get a dip in the bell-shaped curve where if you're a larger company and you found full, the benefits of full-service CRO-ness, then you, you start to outsource. And so the number of sponsors maintaining their own CMF dips down into that inverted bell-shaped curve. And then we don't see an uptick until we get to very, very large companies that have bought into a larger TMF system and they're using multiple modules. So what, what I like to call the e-clinical suite, they're using CTMS, they're using TMF, they're using e-regs, they're using QMS. And they tend to realize the benefits of bringing that in-house because they have many different programs and they use different CROs. So the idea of using maybe three or four preferred vendors and having TMFs lie with those vendors all over the place, um, they see benefit in saying, well, we can do this universally with our one TMF on our own process. So that's the way that I see the trend right now, but by no means is that an absolute. There are different sponsors who do different things at different stages for sure. So when uh, you go through that, I realize that there are limitations to podcasts because you referenced an inverse bell-shaped curve. Took me a minute to get that into my mind. It would be great to have a graphic, but I do get your point. <laughs> which is that it's sort of over the life cycle of companies, there's some patterns with lots of, uh, lots of changes or, or uh, non-conforming examples. We deal a lot with that first group. But as I said, Agatha works a lot with smaller organizations, newer device companies, smaller biotechs. And as you said, they've often, uh, they're in their first study or second study. And as you said, they've solved the problem themselves. They had to make do and exactly as you said, we're fine. They're using shared folders. They're using uh, Box, Dropbox. And as you said, the key there is that, of course, those aren't compliant. And I think that's because many people know there's solutions out there for, for this problem. I should say electronic solutions. But many people think that they're extraordinarily cumbersome and expensive because that's what they saw when they were at a big company. Uh, and the key is to know that you can do this immediately. You can get into an ETMF very early at very low cost that does meet the needs. We'll come back to that, Janine. So I'm gonna interrupt what would probably be follow-up from you because I wanna stay on the point of this ownership of TMF. And as we think about that, and when we started, I said that I saw a conference session talking about taking it back. So if, um, if you put yourself in one of your client situations, what would lead them to think about saying, I'm in this second group. I got a lot of venture money. I outsourced my TMF along with everything else. I deal with multiple CROs, but there's a problem there and I want to take it back. Why would that be? What is the pain point that you would be trying to solve if you were in that company? That's such a good question, Ken, because that is the sweet spot of what we deal with at JP Scientific. I see this a lot. 
Uh, and there is definitely a movement of questioning whether the traditional methods of outsourcing the TMF were the best way to go for you and your vendors. Um, this is this take back the TMF sponsor movement <laughs> is um, by no means uh, a way of suggesting that CRO shouldn't participate in the upkeep and the maintenance of the TMF. They're, they are a key stakeholder and they're business critical. This question is about who maintains the system itself and who is most importantly, who's responsible for the quality control of the system? And that's um, I, a point I think we're probably going to revisit throughout this conversation. So I'll keep it I'll keep it pointed to the question that you asked, which is why would they be asking this question now? And what I hear from my clients uh, time and time again, there is a true pattern here. Um, the first thing is the the transparency of how we're going to share the TMF and everybody's going to know what's in the TMF and where it lies and it's going to be squeaky clean turns to opacity as we move through the conduct of a clinical trial. And that's through nobody's fault. Um, it is through a shifting of focus. And we all go through it. I mean, I've been running clinical trials in one way or another for, like I said, over 20 years. And when I, when you do that, when I do this, when I see my clients do it, there is always a shift in focus because you have to worry about other things. You have to worry about enrollment. There are milestones tied to that. You have deliverables tied to that, and they need to be reported up the food chain. You need to get first patient in. You need to get first patient dosed. You need to get your interim analysis done. You need to get last patient out. You need to get the sites closed. All of those things need to happen. Nobody's sitting there going, we need to have a TMF quality health check. We need to QC two times you know, a year. And so it falls by the wayside. So that's one thing. Um, uh, despite everybody's best efforts up front, it falls by the wayside and the TMF kind of gets pushed to a just-in-time type of cleaning. Um, the second thing is that when a sponsor is allowing a CRO to hold the TMF, what they're doing is they're saying, we believe that your processes are good and you're gonna use them. And a lot of times the reality is the sponsor hasn't looked at the CRO's TMF processes at all. So they don't know if, if they support the way the CRO approaches maintaining that TMF. And they don't look at how the quality checks are done. And a lot of times they're insufficient. So we have, we have maintained the culture of inspection on demand, as opposed to inspection readiness. And I can promise you, and everybody's listening to this podcast, when ICH E6 R3 comes out, inspection on demand is no longer an option. Inspectional readiness, perpetual inspection readiness is what's going to be required of you. And the regulators are already looking at ways that they can utilize the, the remoteness that COVID has brought us to set up a norm where they can check your TMF anytime they want, because it's their and it's available online to them. I'm not saying that's now and I'm not saying it's imminent, but if I had to be a betting person, I would say it's coming. So that's another thing is that you can never really be certain of the quality state of your TMF when it's not in-house and sponsors are starting to realize that. So I think I think I can with those two things combined, those are the two major points. And there are a lot of other smaller points uh, that we could get into the weeds on, but I think those are the two major things that your listeners need to know. Well, thank you very much. The, um the discussion really gets interesting quickly when you talk about uh, the drivers, the issues. I just was dealing with a customer this week and believe it or not, they have just successfully completed their first FDA audit. This is a clinical stage company uh, with a product coming soon. And they had a full FDA audit. They were very successful. Congratulations to them. But they did have a challenge because just as you said, 
they didn't have one TMF, they had three CROs each maintaining parts of the TMF. And therefore, when it came time to produce documents, they did very well, but they literally were pulling documents from three systems behind the scenes and producing them. And in a future where we want the inspector to be able to have a login to a system, be able to see things immediately, be completely inspection ready, that's not gonna cut it. This idea of, you know, we can react and pull it off as opposed to we're ready anytime is a big difference. So again, congratulations to my customer, but working from three backend systems because two of the CROs are maintaining part of the TMF themselves, that's gonna be unacceptable and create all kinds of challenges. So it's, it's exactly what you're saying. It's a matter of uh, trusting those CROs, uh, trusting their quality processes, but also having a single point of the truth accessible and inspection ready all the time. That is really the crux of it, honestly. And that's the point I didn't mention, but I implied and you implied it too. It's all about efficiency. We know what the end of study TMF shuffle looks like because everybody has done it. If they've been in the industry for a few years now and you've closed out a study, you've done it. It's anxiety riddled, it's aggravating, it's frustrating. It takes three times as long and 10 times the amount of do over that it needs to. It's a process that we don't need to deal with. It's a pain we don't need to endure at the end of a study. So this take back the sponsor TMF or sponsors should be taking back their TMF. That is really what this is about. The idea that it doesn't have to be a painful event. It should it should be an event that is set up a priori at the beginning of the study and with the right process in place and the sponsor driving that process, you put it on autopilot and your TMF cruises through the study. And when the study is over, your TMF is ready. There is no shuffle at the end, um, bringing her back and having staff work overtime and paying the CRO to work overtime, which is something that usually doesn't get discussed either. But, you know, those CROs put in mega hours at the end of a study to clean a TMF and the sponsor in the end pays for that. So you've got aggravation, you've got increased timelines and you've got dollars flying out the window all to take care of something, to remediate something that could have been in inspection shape from the beginning. I want to cover two key things. And they're very related. The first is the power dynamics here, because ideally a young company establishes control of its TMF, uses CROs of course, but maintains central ownership of that TMF so that they know the quality is there. They know the completeness is there and it's inspection ready. Why doesn't that happen more often? And I, I think that is about power because if you're a small company, um, first product, you have enough money to go to a CRO. It seems like the CRO often starts with the assumption and of course will manage the TMF as part of this outsource. Am I right about that? Is it kind of a, about power and, and, and who gets to decide who does the TMF when you're selecting a CRO? You're spot on, Ken. That is exactly what happens. Um, I have been through it personally, where I have on behalf of clients, as I'm setting up a clinical operations for them, clinical operations function for them. Um, when we go out and we get bids, the CRO automatically throws in a six-figure line item for a TMF. And we never specifically asked for it. It's an assumption. And the assumption is made for a few reasons. The first reason is that for the CRO, it means additional line items, right? And, and uh, you know, that's why CROs are in business. They're, they're in business to make money. We're all in business on some level to make money. So I don't begrudge them for that, but it may not be the best thing for the sponsor. It certainly is the best thing for the CRO. 
Um, the second thing is, as I alluded to before, they can use their own process. And so if a CRO holds the TMF, that's a plug and play for them. They have their own SOPs, they have their preferred TMF vendor, may or may not be the one that you know your other CROs are using, but they have their preferred vendor, they have everything set up, it's plug and play. They just put it in motion and their, their monitors are used to it. And they usually have a group called the TMF group or the study startup group in some CROs. That group is specifically designed to maintain a TMF, collect essential documents and put them into a TMF. So when the sponsor holds the TMF, that whole ecosphere, or I should say mini ecosphere goes away for the CRO. And then they have to, um, figure out a way to work in the sponsor's TMF, which let's be honest, is not that difficult, but it is a change for them. That's why that dynamic looks the way that it looks, because it is very beneficial for a CRO to maintain the CRF. The sponsor, though, suffers at the hand of the CRO's convenience. Really interesting response in that um, so much comes down to assumptions. And as I said, the power dynamics. So some of this comes down to, if you are that company, that younger, earlier stage company, making hard decisions that are right for the long-term. And I know that's, as you say, your sweet spot of let's get the entire technology ecosystem in place early. It's gonna be a lot less painful later than a transition. Well, when you speak about that, and I hear you talking, Janine, about the challenges and the dynamics of how it happens uh, that CROs, do have control of TMFs in many cases. We can talk endlessly about getting it right at the outset, but the reality is it happens. And I'm sure you have many customers whose starting point is that they don't have in-house management of their TMF. Is the process of change, is the process of transitioning from an, a fully outsourced TMF model, maybe across multiple CROs, to nope, uh, we're, we're managing it in-house with participation from the CROs. Is that a difficult transformation to work through? It is not, Ken. And that's why I think uh, companies don't do it initially because there is this perception that it's such a big deal. I don't have the resources in-house. It would be way too expensive to get a solution. Uh, I don't have expertise to be able to do this. I think those are the top three barriers that sponsors face when they think about, I wanna own my TMF, but how? I could never possibly. Um, the answer is that you can. Um, and I know this because I have worked with clients to do it and clients have done it successfully. The bottom line is that to bring your TMF in-house, it doesn't need to cost a lot of money. That's the first thing. There are very, very well-priced systems out there. And when I introduce clients to those systems, because that is truly, that is a sweet spot of mine. I'll helping clients save money. We like to see them happy with, with what things cost. And so when I point them toward those systems, they are mind blown at the idea that they could get a system that is compliant and built for purpose for um, a lot less than they thought it would cost, a lot less. And the second thing is they think they need a TMF group to own their TMF. That is not true, that's a myth. You don't need a TMF group. You just need a basic set of TMF processes. And that is something that you know we help clients develop. We develop for them. Um, we can even provide support services to get them started. But they, the idea is they can run this in-house with, with their existing clinical operations uh, people, and it doesn't require special expertise. And then the third thing is, does it require a whole army? Absolutely not. Again, 
the people that you have working right now, your project manager is really the person that can drive the ownership of the TMF. And it doesn't need to be a full-time job. If you have the correct processes in place and you apply the correct quality health checks to your TMF, it isn't a behemoth. At least on the technology and cost part, I can confirm all of that because we think of Agatha's solutions as what I call a fourth generation solution. And when people think of document management systems to manage a TMF or manage SOPs. I think they envision a 1990s product uh, platform like Documentum or OpenText, solutions that cost a great deal and take a great deal of effort to bring to production and validation. And that's, as you said, that's just a, a misunderstanding of how much has changed. Not just Agatha, but the generation we're in now, these fourth generation solutions, these are apps, they're in the cloud. They're close to ready to use. They're very close to fully validated. So getting into production can literally be a matter of a couple of weeks. And that's certainly been the case with some of our customers. The other part that reinforces what you're saying is that products like ours allow full import and export of TMF in a format that can be imported or exported by another product. So if you are going through the transition, you say, well, can't do it on this study. I've got stuff in three places. The answer is that's not an insurmountable barrier at all, and it doesn't have to be particularly expensive. Uh, and I suppose I should add the usability part, because again, if your mindset is an older generation product, you think of those cumbersome document management tasks and you need someone called a document manager to do it. And that would be silly today. These are apps, they, they work like anything else. They work on your phone, uh, so they're all, uh, much easier. So that reduces lots of the barriers that you were talking about in transition to both wrapping up, but also kind of putting a bow on what you just said. Can you think in your mind of a customer you've worked with who's gone through this and give us a sense in any way you want, I'm not saying budget, but a sense of the time and effort it took for them to, in quotes, take back control of their TMF? I can. I can think of two quick examples for you. One is an example of the way that I the way that I help a customer do it. And another is an example of a customer who did it um, a bulkier way, let's say. And it, you can see the difference between the two is crystal clear. So let's talk about the customer I helped. The customer I helped had TMF. Uh, they had a few assets in development and they had TMF with three different CROs. And that seems to be the, the sweet spot, I suppose, because there are always three vendors on a preferred vendor list. I don't know why, but a lot of companies tend to have two to three CROs that they're working with. And for a given phase of a trial, um, they might choose a smaller, more niche CRO for a phase one or a dose escalation study, and then they'll move to a larger CRO for a different type of study. That's very common. This client was part of that common set. And so they had literally over 100,000 documents across various TMS, and they needed to, they wanted to get them into their own TMF. And the TMS were not of the same system, um, meaning one software platform held all of the different TMFs. It wasn't the case. They were different systems. So you can imagine they were different systems. They're also different structures. The file structure, yes, we follow the DIA reference model. That is the gold standard, but you can modify that based on needs. And as studies progress, they have different needs. And so what you find are different file structures as well. Um, Again, it goes back to process. The systems do exactly what you tell them to do and the documents live in them based on the way that, that people put them in there. And so 
in order to get documents from multiple spaces into a single space without those systems being integrated, because that isn't the case, um, you have to set up a process to move and clean. And that's what that this is the preferred process. And this is the process that we're using with customers. And this is the process that I find is the most efficient move and clean. And when you move and clean, what you do is you take the documents from the disparate systems, and you quality check them as you're moving them into the new system. It does take a bit of time. I can say that with this size of a TMF, it can take a month or two, but it does, shouldn't take forever. And I think that's also a misconception. Sponsors assume it's gonna take three or six months to move a TMF, and that's not the case at all. It can be as in as little as a few weeks, and it can take a little bit longer if there are a lot of queries that have to go out. But suffice it to say, the move and clean method works really well and it works really efficiently. And if you have a good process for how you identify errors, uh, distribute queries and close out those queries, then that makes the process go a lot faster and it translates into less dollars spent and less time spent moving a TMF. This is something that we actually do for clients and it's something that clients can do for themselves or as is with this client, we create a hybrid model where we support them in identifying the best process. And then they use their own people that they have in-house, their clinical operations team to actually do some of the services. And so with a hybrid model like that, they save money, things go a lot faster and they learn, which is the most important thing in my opinion with my clients. I want you to learn how to, how to do this for yourself. And so when you participate in this hybrid model with us, you learn how to do it. And then it's not so scary when you want to maintain your TMF or maybe take it back for other assets or other studies. The other, the other way to do this is to have it moved for you and allow the CRO to, to move it or to clean the documents. And the thing is, when that happens, it's not that a CRO isn't capable of doing it. It's more, again, about focus. So if a CRO is the primary driver of, of helping you, helping the transition from their TMF into your TMF, it can take a long time. And I have seen it, not with one client, but many clients take three to six months to get that done because the um, identification of queries is slow. The resolution of queries can be slow and the movement of the documents can be very slow because they're, they're, this isn't their core function, right? It's a side for them and their focus, their core function is actually to, to run your study. So when you, when you use that process, it's not nearly as efficient as when you work with a company like us, we're focused on doing this for you. And we know the best processes to put in place. We can keep you compliant. There's a part of this that is also technology-based. So the move and clean is interesting. We work with customers to do the same. And for us, what move and clean looks like is that you tell us you have a thousand documents, they need to come into your TMF. What we need is where are those thousand documents? But also we need an index, simple spreadsheet that says, here they are, here's the file name, but here's what I want you to call it. There is a little bit to it, but once we have that, once we say, here are the files and here's the index, we can pull those in very, very readily. And as you implied, it can be a very simple, very quick process. To some degree, it often depends on the output from the other system. So if the other system is putting out names that are conformed with the reference model, for instance, that's super simple for us. The challenge often, as I think we both experience, is no, it's not coming from another system like that. It's coming from a file share or a box or Dropbox, and they've been named different things, and there's duplicates, and that's the clean part. And that's hard to get around the manual process, and I could see how outsourcing to an expert organization that understands those things could be really necessary. 
because for the size companies we're talking about, as I always say, they have real jobs every day. What you're saying makes sense about a, a good case for using the technology vendor, using a vendor like yourself to get it done once, but then enjoy the benefits of not having to do it again because things are in one place with consistent naming, uh, version control, et cetera, and all compliant, of course. Absolutely. And can that index that you were referencing in the beginning, that's what hopefully you know sponsors understand to be a, a TMF plan or a TMF map or a TMF index. Well, not really a TMF plan is broader than that, but a TMF plan or a TMF map or a TMF index is what you would call that document. And that is supposed to happen during the setup of a TMF any kind of TMF, SharePoint TMF, or a built-for-purpose system TMF, I find a lot of clients don't have that. They haven't taken the time to build it. And that's one thing that is when it comes time to do the transfer, if you don't have that document, it can take a little bit of time. But um, just for the benefit of any listeners, um, TMF doc or a TMF index or a TMF uh, map is what, what you're looking for for that. I love chatting with you, Janine. And it comes with a confession that I myself, have many, many years playing the role of consultant. So sometimes I take an executive role in companies like Agatha, but a lot of my career has also been independent and working with clients just as you do. And even though that's true, even though we share that DNA, I'm very wary of consultants sometimes because, and this is you know the confession part, it seems like sometimes in our space, the role of a, an SME is let's make it more complicated. Let's make it scarier because then they'll need us more. And I believe that's true, that that does happen in, in the industry with any consulting organization. The reason I love speaking to you so much is you really do the opposite. You're constantly demystifying and saying, it's not that hard. You can get it done, et cetera. Thank you for being on today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I do want to wrap with this, which is this is the first session on this topic that all relates to bringing the TMF in-house. And I want to talk with you as we finish, Janine, to look ahead at the other sessions and what we think we need to cover in those sessions. I'll start, Janine, but as we think about what we want to cover in our additional conversations, I know I want to talk about technology, but I also am very, very clear and honest that technology is part of a solution. It is never the solution that process and people always come first. So what are the, some of the things you'd like to talk about in our next conversation? Absolutely. I think the pro, you're right. The process is the driver of the technology. So I, I don't know, I'm a car person, to be honest. And so when I think of what you need to do, that roadmap to get from here to where you want to be, is that the technology is the car you choose and you can choose a super fancy one or you can choose a utilitarian one. Either will get you from point A to point B. Um, how much you spend is going to depend on the vehicle you choose, right? But but, but you're still going to get there. Um, the process is the road, though, and the way that you drive the car. And so the car is going to sit there and not go anywhere unless you have process in place and a person to drive it. So you need the road, you need the people, you need the technology. That's how I like to think of it. it it's really a trifecta. And none, again, none of those things are complicated. It's just knowing what to do with the thing that you have. Every car is different and every car drives a little bit differently. The process for driving is generally the same. 
same, but you really want to take a look at what an organization is doing. You want to take a look at the technology that's available to them, and you want to take a look at how they want to work because every company wants to work the way that they want to work. And I think that that is the key. Uh, when I work with customers, when we work with clients, the key is how do you want this to look? Because this is your show. It's your road. It's your car you drive it the way you want, but we're going to help you learn how to do that so that it's compliant. And we're going to give you tips and best practices so that you can get there the most efficient way possible. Well, I'll start by saying my choice is a, a 1966 red Mustang convertible. Thank you very much. Uh, un- oh, very unmodified, nice. unmodified, preferably, um, <laughs> but I can't afford that car today. Um, so When I think about that metaphor, it's really powerful because that's the point of this series. It's meant to be not just a discussion, but um, allowing people to get actionable insights, advice. How do I actually do it? That's my goal in these sessions. So in the next one, we'll jump right in on that and talk about, so you you convinced me we should have it in-house. Now what? What's the plan? What's the budget? What are the obstacles and how do I work around them? So I really look forward to that conversation. For today, I'll say just thank you very, very much, Janine. And I hope you all who are listening connect to the next in this series. Remember, this is on the front lines of clinical operations. And our goal is to get you face-to-face with ClinOps professionals who can share with you what they've learned so that you can put it into action. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.